When we come to understand the parts of ourselves that are hurt or scared, we can begin to heal from our past wounds. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea, and one time I said ahoy shit shows, and it stuck, so hopefully you are not pirate-averse, because you're going to get to hear me say that the beginning of every damn episode. I am also a complete and utter shit show. I'm also a recovering alcoholic. I'm also an adult child of an alcoholic family, which means that my child experiences negatively impacted my life as an adult, which means that I experienced complex trauma as a kid and had no damn clue that what I experienced was trauma, meaning that I also experienced and still experience at times complex PTSD, especially in romantic situations. So emotional flashbacks, hypervigilance, emotional dysregulation, also spent so many damn years not realizing that that was complex PTSD. And so this is where we talk about what to do when you realize your childhood screwed you up a whole lot more than you thought it did, what to do when you realize you experienced complex trauma as a kid when you had no damn clue that you did, and what to do when you realize that what you're experiencing in adulthood is complex PTSD and you had no damn clue. So welcome aboard this hot mess of a ship. So I just realized that sometimes when I am recording, I've noticed that there's like this almost like this wah, 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 wah noise in the background. I apologize if you've been subjected to that. I've tried my best to to get rid of it, but I realize that it's when I don't have my microphone on, like it's, what the hell do you call it? Like an arm, like a metal arm, and that when I have it sitting down just directly on the table, it's this little stand like goes back and forth. So hopefully we're gonna be avoiding that in the future. I pride myself on my audio quality, but there's been there's been a few times like, There was a time a couple, I don't know when it was a month ago, and I like legit sounded like I was underwater (laughs) the whole episode, but I just really didn't want to re-record it. So today we are diving deep with returning guest, Harry Baranski. So he is an IFS practitioner. I will put in the show notes the link to his initial appearance such a good episode, very fascinating this IFS stuff is. I recommend going and listening to that episode first if you haven't listened to it. So this is a really popular uh, therapy modality, healing modality, especially for adult children. I can say that there are a lot of people within the shit show community that utilize this and seem to be getting a ton of positive results. So I asked Terry in the beginning to briefly explain again what it is, but I will just also provide a brief definition. So it is an approach to psychotherapy that identifies and addresses multiple sub-personalities within each person's mental system. So sub-parts. The sub-parts consist of wounded parts and painful parts, such as anger or shame, and these are typically called exiles. And then we have parts that try to control and protect the person, us. And so often what the deal is is that these parts are often in conflict with each other and with one's core self. The self, which Terry dives into to great length in this episode, is... Basically, the part of us that is confident, compassionate, the whole person. So IFS is focusing on healing these wounded parts and restoring mental balance and harmony by changing the dynamics that create discord among these parts and our true selves. So this was developed by psychologist Richard Schwartz, Dick Schwartz, back in the 70s or the 80s, I believe. And it has really taken off in the past several years, the past 10 years or so. And again, it just seems to be a very popular healing modality for adult children of dysfunctional families and those of us with complex trauma. So excited for you guys to hear this conversation. In the first episode that I did with Terry as well, we just kind of off the fly did a mini IFF session during the interview. So 
Again, highly recommend that you go listen to that as well. So let's get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show. This is my online support community where I host four weekly Zoom support groups. So these are on Sundays at 3.30 p.m. Eastern, Mondays, 8.30 p.m. Eastern, Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Eastern, and Thursdays at 8 30 p.m eastern these are all on zoom this is also where we have a chat a discussion board we have various threads that have different subgroups where you can chat about specific topics some of these subgroups have their own meetings once a week so i know we have a divorce and separation group we have a new uh, shit show parenting group that is starting. So those of y'all who are actively parenting, and then we have our survivors group. So those who have experienced childhood sexual abuse. This is a support community at your damn fingertips in your damn pocket. If you're struggling and you need real time support, this is the place to get it with a bunch of really cool shit shows from all across the country and the world. And it's a really, really amazing, special place to be. You're not going to find anything like it. Like, for example, we will be joking around about stupid shit. And then the next second, we will be crying tears of, of joy or sadness or whatever. This is a place where people feel really safe being as authentic and honest as they need to be. So how about you just do the damn thing and damn the join shit show. See the link in the show notes. Let's do it, folks. Next, give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Agile Child Pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple, on Spotify. Thank you. Love you all. All right, y'all. He's back. Mr. IFS, Terry Bransky. Welcome. Hi, Andrea. Good to be here again. I'm glad that you reached out. I got so much good feedback on your episode. And I know that you've had several listeners reach out to work with you. So yeah, yeah. the more I learn about this stuff and the more I talk with people in my community, it really seems like this is a really effective modality for us adult children. Yeah, I find that too. It resonates so well with people. It's such a fundamentally different way of looking at the mind. And I found this myself. It just makes sense. Do you feel like it's getting a lot more traction like as of late? And do you know why? It definitely is, particularly the last five to 10 years. The, the trainings are booked. You can't get in them anymore. Like therapists are discovering this and saying, oh, wow, this is so much more effective than the cognitive stuff, the behavioral stuff. And it's interesting. It you know, Richard Schwartz came up with it in the 80s. So it took a while. You know, It was a very slow build while he worked out the particulars of it and what works best. And now it's just completely taken off. off because, yeah, we need something that just works better than what we've been doing. I think that's clear. Yeah, I've been trying to get him on the damn show. So <laughs> I've been communicating with him on LinkedIn. I'll get him to respond every once in a while. So I just need mm. to keep bugging him. Yeah. So you and I did a session yesterday. And what I'll say is that, and I told you this beforehand, that I get really nervous that like nothing's going to come through. Anytime I'm doing inner child work with my therapist, like I've been trying to do more parts work with my therapist. And I'm sure so many people can relate to this, but it's just, you're sitting there and you're like, something come to me, something come to me, something come to me, you know? And then you feel like you have to think something. I think same mm -hmm. thing for with EMDR. I remember when I did EMDR, just being like, all right, where do I go? Where do I go? And then finally something comes in. But I felt yesterday was, it, it felt the most natural to me. And this is what I was thinking about afterwards is that like, I think I've been thinking that I have to like hear voices. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's what I've been waiting for is to like hear voices. But for me, it comes through as a sense of knowing, at least that's what was coming to me yesterday. And so when something would come in and pop in immediately, and it didn't feel like there was any sort of thought process behind it, that's when I felt like, okay, this is the real deal. So I'm curious for you, what do you see with the people that you work with, your voices? Do some people just have a sense of knowing? Like, how does it show up for you? Yeah, a number of ways. And, and I'm glad you brought this up because parts can show up for not only on a per person basis differently, but different parts can show up differently for a given person. So, you know, voices is common. A lot of times there's a visual associated with it, but not always. Sometimes it, it's purely a physical sensation or purely emotional content. And sometimes it's what we call a, a felt sense, which is a term from focusing, which is just like, you just know somehow, like it kind of just, it, it's beyond the rational mind. So a big part of IFS is creating that space 
and, and we're not going in with expectations of what a part feels like. Because as soon as you do that, that's the rational mind. And that's going to interfere with just creating that openness. And so you did great yesterday. You know, it, it took a few minutes. It wasn't, it, and it, you, that's usually the case right out of the gate, but you were patient with it. You created space and you waited. And then I think for you, it started out with a physical sensation and then you just stayed with it and then it evolved from there. And that's often what we see. What was the first part of yours that you identified? Ooh, interesting question. And where was it and where'd you feel it? Ooh, you're taking me back now. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, what, what comes to mind, not, I can't say this is the very first one, but just the, there, and there are several parts I have that were very impatient back then. And, and just in terms of like, I was always in a hurry. I found myself for no reason, like I had plenty of time, but just parts that always had that sense of urgency behind them. And that's a lot of stress, you know, when you think about it. And for me, it was so normal that I, you, oh, you just think, oh, that's me. That's how I am. But then when you see, oh, that's a part, and then you find out, well, what are you afraid would happen if you stopped doing that? Like there's this perception, there, there's a sense of scarcity throughout this culture about a number of things that's a trauma symptom. You know, we think things are, you know, money. I mean, you can look at capitalism like it's embedded in the framework, but also time. Like we, so even me, I find I act a lot of times like I'm short of time when I'm not. And so that was a big insight. And working with that one, I really saw a shift. And now it's, oh, it's, oh, it's like, oh, I'm more calm. Now I'm not rushing when I'm cooking dinner for absolutely no reason. Like there's no schedule. So that was one of the first big ones. What was that rooted in? That was rooted in, yeah, interesting question. So, so that there's kind of like a two-tier hierarchy in this work. So there are parts that we call protectors. Mm -hmm. And then there are parts that we call exiles, which are carrying the pain. And a lot of times exiles end up with, and this was the case for me, that the, there's kind of a sense of franticness from really young mm -hmm. when we were really trying to be loved and get, get the attention. And we had to work to maintain the attachment relationship. Like that's what we conclude. So then we end up as adults who are constantly go, 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 and can't relax. And there are other reasons for this too, but this is one of them where we just, it, it just becomes, these parts take over when we're young and, the, and these parts get stuck in the past. So they don't know it's 2024 and we're older now and we're safe, hopefully, for the most part. Like, so they keep doing this until you get in there and get to know them and then heal what, what they're carrying. The other thing I was thinking about is my addiction to my phone and how that has got to make it difficult for me to tune in and connect within when I am just so used to being hyper stimulated, like doing a million things at once. I was talking to my therapist about that. You know, like if I constantly am just like doing two things at once, like that's got to make it difficult to, to connect with my parts and my body and actually sense what's going on because I'm yeah. just constantly yeah. seeking that next dopamine hit. Yeah. And, and that's also like not, a lot of us can't handle downtime again for a variety of reasons, but when, I mean, you did great yesterday. So what, what you showed yesterday was you, you can do it and maybe someone needs to guide you up front in order for you to be able to get there on a consistent basis. But like, that's within you, the ability's there. It's not some muscle you don't have that we need to find and strengthen. Like you did it within five minutes yesterday, but when we're on our own and there, you know, there's a piece of this, this habit. But it's also that, and you called it an addiction, you're spot on. So it's talking, we would talk to that part too and say, okay, I feel this urge to pick up the phone. I'm going to ask that part, why? What is it afraid would happen if I don't pick up the phone right now? And you'll get an answer, you know, when we start doing this work. And that doesn't mean that two minutes later, you don't pick up the phone. We're not saying stop it. We're just saying, okay, talk to me about why first so I can learn. And then that kind of puts you on a road to, to being able to deal with it. Do you find that there are any things that are helpful to pair with IFS to like make the process more beneficial? Like, do you suggest that people try to do some sort of meditation or mindfulness or anything that you find helps with the work? Yeah, it's really person dependent. I, I think there's a lot of focus on mindfulness and, and meditation these days that without also doing the emotional work is mm -hmm. not, certainly for me, wasn't useful. And I think for most people. Yeah, it's like spiritual bypassing to an extent. Yeah. So the great thing about IFS is it lends itself very well to self-work in between sessions. And that's why it works relatively quickly, generally mm -hmm. compared to other things. And, it, and it's also why people typically don't need to be in, a, in weekly IFS therapy for years because you can start to scale that back. And, and it is very meditative. I mean, you saw it yesterday where I, you know, you go inside, normally the eyes are closed, you're focused mm -hmm. inwards. So there is a meditative component to it, but it's more active because you're actively exploring the internal landscape as opposed to just passively observing. So I think that in between sessions, I, I haven't found, you know, everyone has a, their own meditation routine and yoga and Tai Chi and all this stuff. I haven't really dug into 
if any of those things would specifically help more than others. I, I think that people find what, what works for them and we just kind of go with that. So before we dive into, we're going to talk about big S self. Do you want to just give a, just give it for anybody who I'll, and I'll include the link in the show notes for when he was originally on, but why don't you just give like a two minute overview of what the hell IFS is before we dive in? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good idea. So, so IFS is internal family systems and it's both a type of therapy and a tool for self-improvement where we look at the mind a very different way uh, than we typically do in this culture. So typically we, th we say I or me as if we're referring to one thing. Mm-hmm. But in this approach, we look at the mind as consisting of parts of being a multiplicity. And it, if that sounds strange, it turns out that this is an observation that's been made over and over again throughout recorded history. Socrates, Plato, Freud all talked about it. Carl Jung was big on this. And it really until now has yet to, like it's always been there, but it has yet to gain big traction in terms of how we view ourselves and how we relate to ourselves. So these parts in an FS perspective are subpersonalities. Mm -hmm. within us. They're more than just emotions. So we may start out referring to them that way. We may say, oh, I have this angry part because that's how we sense it at first. But th that angry part can also feel different things at different times. And th the key is these parts are normal. Number one, I always highlight that. They're not something pathological that's the result of trauma. They are inborn. Trauma does, however, impact them in severe ways in terms of how they behave and what their fears are and what, you know we'll get into that but they're in there they're normal and, and if we go through you know life not knowing this because no one tells us this it they just they kind of do their own thing in there without you know it's you know like a bunch of kids running around without adults around they they take us over a lot of times when we're do, especially when we're reactive mm -hmm. there's a part that has essentially taken us over at that point and is reacting to the past, not the present, even though it seems like the present. And if there's no awareness of that, if, if we don't look at the mind this way. So these things are very difficult to explain unless we have this view of the mind. So the, the crux of IFS is working with our parts, establishing relationships with them, getting to know them, hearing what their fears are and why they do the things that we do. And that's how we address issues that we're having in life. So with an addiction, for example, we don't tell the person stop drinking or stop doing whatever. We know how well that typically works. Instead, we ask why. Why is there a part driving this behavior? And there's always a reason. Mm -hmm. This stuff is not genetic. It's not random. And the part will share with you once it trusts you, which usually doesn't take too long, what those reasons are. And, and so anyway, again, sets us on the path of, okay, what do we need to do to heal so this part doesn't need to do that anymore? And so when you say inborn, are you saying that when we're born, we already have all these parts in us? Yeah. So we're born with exiles. Well, we're not, they're not exiles till they get traumatized is what I would say. So we're born with parts who are very joyful and very happy-go-lucky and they stay that way. You know, this is how, because we always have parts of us who, even more adults, you know, we have childlike parts of us and that's a good thing. So they're not exiled at that point because they're not carrying trauma. When they get traumatized, what happens is they end up, the protector parts push them down and lock them away for their own protection to try to avoid further trauma. So that's when they end up in these roles is when we're, we're traumatized. But a healthy system that's trauma-free, th these parts are there, but they, they operate in a more integrated way because okay. they're not reactive all the time. So you wouldn't notice them as much at that okay. point. They're still there, but they're, you know, they're more harmonious, if, if that makes sense. And so then just various parts when we experience certain things like are we born with protectors or is that also something that happens as a result of the trauma that we endure yeah that's a role they take on as a result of trauma yeah mm -hmm. so like at let's say a totally healthy person like they would not i mean i guess everybody i know everybody experiences trauma to like a certain extent but it's interesting so but then i would assume though we're you know we're obviously born with like various predispositions as far as like what type of protectors would form, right? I think you'd see like similarities within families or similarities within trauma experienced as far as like the types of parts that are formed. Yeah, it's tough. I, I don't, I mean, there hasn't been research on this, of course, because this is just now getting pretty popular. It'll be interesting to see. You know, when they do that to look at, okay, these types of people tend to have these, you know, parts that have these roles. For me, I haven't noticed any big trends with people because we just go with what's there. Uh -huh. You know, that, that's that's a critical part of this work. Now, when if, if we take a theoretically untraumatized system, which we haven't met very many of those people, but, you know, there are parts that, so 
there are subcategories of protectors. One of those is managers. Managers are proactive and they help us in day-to-day -day life. So we may have a manager that helps us focus on work when we need to work. We may have a manager that motivates us to exercise when it's time to exercise. None of these things are pathological. So that's what a, an untraumatized system would look like. You would have parts in roles that benefit you and that are not reacting to past trauma. And what happens is trauma causes these roles to get more extreme. So then you get addicted to exercise, for example, because you're doing it to not do, you know, to either not to keep emotions down or whatever the case may be. So, so that's, that's a, hopefully a helpful example of what a, you know, non-pathological versus pathological behavior in terms of protectors. So we have like exiles, protectors, protectors, you can either have what managers and firefighters, correct? Right. And then what would like a, what would be like a healthy part? We just call it a part. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think manager is still a, a good term. For, for like the one I just described, yeah, firefighters a little, yeah, it doesn't quite work for a for a non traumatized system. I agree with you there, but it, it, no, it, I just mean for like a, like well, you have these exiles, but what about these like what happens when we heal an exile? Are we still calling it that? Yeah, well, it's yeah, well, it's not exiled at that point, so no, no. It, and what it, would it, we just call it a part? Yeah, it sometimes parts will like everyone has their own way of identifying. Like mm -hmm. sometimes it's oh, the six year old. Mm -hmm. Right. If there's one six year old, sometimes a, a, the person will give a part a name because it just comes to them mm -hmm. or the part will say, call me this. Mm -hmm. A lot of times parts take on non-human forms. So you may say like the red eyed dragon, for example, which I had earlier today. So it exiles how, it, you know, no one really calls their own mm -hmm. parts in exile. That's just a term we use in sessions because that whether it's an exile or protector to kind of determines how we work with it. But once it's healed, that distinction isn't so important anymore. And then often are you like, cause I know it's in no bad parts, but will you like map out like on a body when you're working with somebody and note where things are? Like, do you do that? You know, I take notes okay. when I'm, because it, a lot of times someone will, you know, we'll do this intense session for an hour. And a lot of people literally have amnesia afterwards. They, they completely mm. forget the next day who they met mm. in there. And it's, it's fascinating. This is very common. Is uh, that a, like a defense mechanism? No, I think it's just because there's a completely different part of the brain at work in these mm -hmm. sessions. Mm -hmm. And it, it just impacts for some people, like the memories aren't laid down. So then I send them notes afterwards about what we did. And it's also, I mean, I would forget too. So it's, it's for me, I, I don't do so much the, you know, a map, but it's, you know, it's a notepad file of here's where the part is in the body. Here's how it presented. That, that's how I keep track of it. But some people do do, they, they draw their parts. They create lines between them to show relationships. You can take it pretty far. Mm -hmm. And in order, obviously, to like get to these exiles, we we're often having to remove the protectors from that before we can get to them. Correct? A lot yeah. of times. Yeah, the protectors have to trust you. Mm -hmm. So, so there's a hierarchy in there that we that's very, very important to honor. So we never try to heal on exile without getting permission from the protector or protectors. Sometimes there are multiple first because if you do that the, there's going to be consequences later the protector's going to get annoyed and they're going to do something to send you let you know that that's not acceptable so at the outset we're establishing trust with protectors mm -hmm. in a lot of cases between protectors and the self which we'll talk about and then at some point they usually pretty quickly but they trust you enough and you say hey can is it okay if i go to this part you're protecting mm -hmm. you can stay close Mm -hmm. You can come back in at any time and shut mm -hmm. it down if you're not comfortable, and they will. But is it okay if, if we go and, and heal this one? And once they trust you, they'll, say, they'll usually say, yeah, sounds good, I, because they don't like their jobs any more than we like them having those jobs. You know, they're, they're exhausted in a lot of cases. They're, they've had it. They've been doing this for decades. So they're usually up for it once they meet the self and say, okay, this is a consistent presence now, and I can rely on this person. And then, and then that's when we get permission to go in and do the, the deep healing. And if we want to kind of describe at large, like what the healing process is, it is like having an understanding of why parts do what they do and getting through to them, how almost like reversing limiting or faulty beliefs in a sense. What yeah, so there, that's an effect of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we don't, a lot of these things are done indirectly, which mm -hmm. is interesting. Because again, you can't, it's just like telling a person, if I try to tell a part, stop believing X, Y, Z, mm -hmm. the part's going to be like, no, there's, there, there are the reasons why 
I believe that. So, so it's like showing them through action too, I guess. Yeah. I mean, some of the, you know, some of these things are open, like a part may have a belief that you can say, well, that hasn't happened in 40 years. Are you, are you aware of this? And then some, and sometimes it'll click mm -hmm. or them went, Oh, you're right. Because their sense of time is, is not like ours. Mm -hmm. So they don't, they don't know these things a lot of times until we point them out. But the fundamental step in healing is called unburdening, which is when we invite the part to let go of any toxic self-beliefs that it's carrying any toxic emotions any any memories that are very triggering about what it went through and it's actually a very shamanic type of process where we work with the part to give it up to light wind fire air water or earth and the part will choose which one and it, it's amazing first of all somatically what this feels like to people so often you know it can sound like oh we're just imagining we're doing visualizations it, it's not this is real and the part gives that stuff up and then we invite in good qualities to replace it with. So the part will, oh, I want to invite in love, joy, confidence, you know, and we're, and we're deferring to the part with, with all this stuff, but that's, and there are other things, but you know, it's easier to describe. It takes a little longer when you're actually doing it, but that's the gist of, so it's not about talking anyone out of a belief or necessarily even providing evidence to the contrary, although sometimes that helps. It's about, hey, just, are you ready to let this go mm. now? And once the parts have shared their story with you, and they know that you get it, they're 99% of the time, so they're like, yeah, let's get rid of this. I don't need this anymore. And that's when the shifts occur big time. Do you have any, are, are there any experiences? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. That you've had lately that have been particularly impactful or different that you've seen or mind-blowing? Yeah, it, I mean, it's amazing. It, what I have to remind myself on a regular basis is to not just get used to, because everyone's amazing in its own way, and it's easy to get used to it and take it for granted when you're seeing it over and over again. But, you know, two things that come to mind. So there's what I've just described, which is the, the standard usual unburdening process. But what we also do with IFS is there's a, a lot of times we inherit things from ancestors and there, a part will tell you when that's the case. Sometimes like half of what they're carrying is inherited and half is from its own experience. And there's a different process for that inheritance piece where we invite the ancestors in and we pass it back up the line. And then it goes to the beginning, whenever that is. And then at the beginning, they give it up mm. to one of the elements. Now, again, hearing this for the first time, and when I read it, I was kind of, that, that's really wonky. But when, when someone experiences this, just you can sense the shift in the session. Mm -hmm. it, it is so, so powerful. They're bringing in these ancestors who, a lot of whom they've never even met, like, you know, great, great, great ancestors. who just, And the, the system just knows what to do. Like, none of this is rational. The system knows where this burden started, how far back to pass it. And, it, and we even, if the person has kids, we actually start with the kids and they pass it back to the person and the person passes it back to their parents all the way up. Super, super powerful. The other piece of this that we probably won't have time to get into today, but th there's a whole piece to this that involves energies coming in from the outside, which I hesitate to even mention because now it starts to sound really crazy. But, really but wonky, yeah. yeah, the people who developed this model just started running into these things sometimes inside people that the person would even say, this feels different. This doesn't feel like me. This mm -hmm. is not a part. Mm -hmm. Or when you ask the thing directly, it'll say, no, I'm not a part. And what it is, is an energy that has come in at some point, usually during trauma from the outside. And a lot of times these things terrorize people. Like these are the ones that are really intense. Mm -hmm. the, the really, really intense inner critics sometimes are, are these, they're called unattached burdens in IFS or entities, right? And, and those things have to be gotten out. And so it's not a exorcist type of thing. It's not all dramatic like that, but it's similar in concept where that, you know, you, we basically tell the thing, look, you have to go, you can't stay. This isn't a democracy. You don't get a vote. And then there's a process to get them out. And, and that's when that's some of the most powerful sessions I've done is when something's been in there for decades inside a person, one way or another, terrorizing them. And in, a, in one session, you get it out and, and it's like a different person is in front of you.
at that point. It really, really is amazing to to just see that that type of thing happen. Wow. Yeah. So let's get into this big ass self. Yeah. Yeah. So the capital S self. So when we're relating to our parts, when we're noticing our parts, when we're engaged with our parts, the, the question becomes, who is it who's relating? Mm. Who is it who's aware? So in IFS, we speak of the self with a capital S. And self is our essence, our seat of consciousness. It's the aspect of us that's not a part. And it turns out that every spiritual tradition has a word for this. So we have Buddha nature, which we're familiar with. There's Atman in Hinduism, Christ consciousness in Christianity. So this is something that's been discovered over and over again all over the world independently. And it, it's amazing how consistent the descriptions of it are between all of these traditions. So from an IFS perspective, the self is intended to be the leader of the internal system. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you think of human systems like families, companies, countries, they tend to function best with clear, respected leadership. And so, you know, I often use the analogy of an orchestra when talking about parts because every member of the orchestra has a role, mm-hmm. so to speak. And what they're creating is a harmonious one. Like the music is a harmonious, it's one thing created by all these individual parts of the orchestra. So in this perspective, self is the conductor of the orchestra. And self relates to our parts with compassion, clarity, curiosity, a bunch of C words. I won't try to remember them all right now, but self does this both internally with our own parts and externally with others because Mm -hmm. self is a unifying force. It works with parts, resolves conflicts, and provides balance. Now, one of the keys is that in day-to-day life for many of us, self isn't very present. So when parts come to dominate our day-to-day mental functioning, they obscure the self like clouds covering the sun. The self is still there, but it's just hidden. And we refer to this as being parts-led mm-hmm. when parts are running the show in our system. And a lot of times it's, you know, one moment this part takes over, another moment another part takes over, and then another one, and it's just a lot of churn in our minds day in and day out. And that's how a lot of us go through life, you know, when we really start to look at this. So, and when a part, you mentioned blending. So so when a part takes over, we refer to that as the part blended mm-hmm. with us. Mm-hmm. So we think we're the part when this happens. Mm. And this is critical. So if a part of me is blended with me, Andrea, and gets very angry with you, it will feel to me like the totality of my being is angry with you and no other perspectives will be available to me at that moment. It's very, it's very black and white at that point. I am angry, period. All right. So that when a part takes over, that's what happens. And, and that, that's, again, that's how we spend the majority of our lives. One, either one part or the other kind of taking over like this. So, so we can talk and that's a little really bit. Like when we go into, it's like a trauma response, right? Totally. Essentially. Yeah. Because that's what the yeah. part's reacting to is the past. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that's self. And then I'll, we can talk a little bit about how to access self, but I just, I'll, I'll pause there. I feel like I'm talking a lot and just see how no, all that lands. And... Yeah. So I guess, like you said, there's various degrees of blending. Do you mean that from the perspective of like when, when we're like fully blended, like, is that really when we're like, you know, when somebody really is, and I'm thinking about some recent experiences that I've had, but really when somebody is like clearly unable to see, like, like when they fully are in that trauma response, when they're fully reacting to something in the past, that is, would you consider that to be like fully blending when you're like basically almost like fully blind? Yeah. I think that's the easiest scenario to understand when Mm -hmm. we're in a really reactive state because Mm -hmm. we're triggered, Mm -hmm. you know, it just makes sense, but it gets a lot more subtle. Mm -hmm. So even I I mentioned managers who help us work. Mm -hmm. If I'm 100% focused on work for a given time period and I'm not, you know, I'm in flow, I'm not distracted, then that part is blended too. But but that's not a bad thing Mm -hmm. at that point. So blending is not necessarily bad. Okay. Blending when it, when a part is reacting to trauma, then, then that's when blending can get us, get us into trouble. Okay. Yeah. And it is a spectrum. Like you said, it's not one or zero. It's, you know, we, we look, what we look for is a degree of self of self. That's usually not a hundred percent unless we're in some deep meditative state, but is there enough self there? Cause I can be working and I have parts who are helping with that, but I'm also self-aware to some extent. 
you know, at that point too. So then it's, a, there's some percentage of self-energy there. So it, it, there is a spectrum. Okay. Continue. Yeah. So how do we get more self into the picture? I mean, that's kind of the natural question that comes and And the key is that we don't have to go looking for it. It's not something we need to try and activate or try and strengthen. It's not a muscle that needs exercised. What we find with this work over and over again is that as parts unblend, self just appears. So when the clouds part, the sun mm -hmm. comes out. Mm -hmm. And a big part of the IFS process early on is establishing trust between our parts and ourself, meaning getting our parts to trust ourself. So self forms relationships with these parts, and those relationships become the, the essence of our healing because they set the stage for self to give our parts the help that they need so, so much. And so you might think of this as inner attachment work mm -hmm. because that's really what it is. It's, it's the self doing all this inner relationship work, establishing that trust, and then, then that's where healing can begin. So it's very interesting, right? We, don't, we can't will self into the picture mm -hmm. because it parts control when they're blended or not self doesn't so what we do is if we need self if we want more self in a given situation we can invite our parts to unblend so that self can appear and whether they'll do that depends on how much they trust self how triggered they are at that moment and how much trauma they're carrying okay give me self <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> How would you compare what IFS things to like dissociative identity disorder? Yeah. So DID is the, you know, there's a spectrum of the theoretical untraumatized system that we talked about on one side and then DID on the other. That's all. Those are just the two extremes. So in DID, the trauma has been so severe that the parts are further split. They don't okay. know each other in a lot of cases, and they either don't know or are terrified of the self. So that, so it's, it's just, a, it, it's a question of degree. Those are the ones that the, the more trauma there is, the more fragmented our parts get and the more independently they behave. Like, so you have this system of parts, you know, a system is supposed to operate in a coherent, harmonious way. Ideally, the more trauma there is, the, the more that breaks down because parts are now, they're not, as we said, they're not acting based on the present. There's all this baggage from the past mm -hmm. that they're carrying. And so it completely interrupts that harmony. And, and to the point where in DID, a lot of parts don't know each other and there's, they have different memory. So the person will have amnesia, you know, from one switch to the next. And so, yeah, just, just more severe. Is IFS effective for people with DID? It is. It yeah. Is. That, that when Richard Schwartz created it, he, for, for some period of time was working almost exclusively. That's my understanding anyway, with a lot of DID patients, there's a great book called the mosaic mind that was written about one of them. Like. It's, it's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it is, it, you know, it tends to take longer because there's, again, there's a lot more separation and fragmentation to deal with, but it is effective. Yeah. Have you worked with many people? I've not worked with people who have that diagnosis, mm -hmm. but I've seen it because a, a lot of people have, again, dissociation is also a spectrum. So you, there are people who are on that somewhere on that spectrum where they have, there is some dissociation that occurs, but it's not to the point where they, they flat out have that diagnosis. Is this by Regina Golding? Yes. Golding? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Next topic. Larger. What you said. So you've been out speaking in some conferences about parts and you explain it. And then people are like, okay, now what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so, and we've been touching on this, but really the reason we talk about parts, the reason we care is because we want to heal trauma. At least to me, you know, I'm not speaking for everybody, but, but that's the fundamental goal of IFS is just that, right? So I like to give a quick overview of my perspective on trauma and then how, how it ties into parts. So trauma to me is, it occurs when an event causes a long-term constriction, fragmentation, or disconnection within us. And traumatic events can be either acute, such as assault, or more commonly chronic, such as years of misattuned parenting. And two big types of chronic trauma are non-recognition, which is when we're not seen, not valued, and disconfirmation, when aspects of us, parts of us, are rejected. Now, to what degree a traumatic event leads to trauma depends on two primary things. The, the first is the degree to which the person has loving support from adults in their life at the time of the event. This support, either socially or parentally, 
can reduce, if not eliminate, the amount of trauma that is ultimately taken on from a given event. And then the second factor is the amount of prior trauma that they're already carrying. So what we find is that trauma begets trauma. So the more trauma we're carrying, the more likely we are to be traumatized further by mm -hmm. a given event. Mm -hmm. And this is because when parts are carrying trauma, they're more reactive. They get triggered easier. So it just makes sense that, that an event that happens is going to be more severe to parts who are already carrying stuff from the past. So this is why multiple people can live through the exact same traumatic mm -hmm. event and all be impacted differently. So trauma is everywhere. It's pervasive. This culture is traumatic. So those, you know, you can't be raised in it and not have a trauma history. So what this has to do with parts is that it's our parts who bear the brunt of our traumas. Our parts are the ones who get hurt and who take on defensive roles in the system. And they can become highly reactive, sensitive, or even numbed as a result of trauma. Now, in a traumatized system, there are two fundamental types of parts that we've talked about. We have burden parts, which are the exiles. Those parts carry pain and toxic self-beliefs. They absorb what is inflicted upon us, and they're stuck carrying it until we do healing work to release mm -hmm. it. And then we have protector parts who tend to run our day-to-day -day lives to try to minimize the degree to which burden parts are further traumatized. Okay. Now, We've talked about some of this, but it's often shocking to discover the degree to which protector parts, you know, most of our day-to-day -day behaviors, and even most of what we would consider our personality, is actually the activity of protector parts. And this runs the gamut from being chronically shy, withdrawn, numb, or shut down, to being anxious and always on the lookout for threats, to people-pleasing, mm -hmm. to being a workaholic, mm -hmm. to addictions to violence, anything else you can think of. But the key with this work, and this is really important, is that this is not the natural state of our parts. This is what happens to parts as a result of trauma. So our parts go from being separate but collaborative to being fragmented and even adversarial in some cases. And these ways that our parts respond to trauma are actually an intelligent function. That's the other key. Mm -hmm. This is nature's way of making the best out of bad circumstances. So, as I may have said before, this, this work is not about pathologizing parts or making them wrong. That's not what we do here. We, instead, again, we ask why, and we, and we seek to understand, and we move towards rather than fighting against or moving away. And that, that's the shift in terms of how we work with it. Like, okay, we have this different way of viewing the mind. That's fascinating. But the, the giant shift in terms of how we work with these things, because normally, one way or another, we're trying to resist mm -hmm. these things or trying to ignore or distract. And this is the opposite of that. And, and so that, that's why this, it, to me, is so powerful. Yeah. Do you feel like it is, because I, I guess in No Bad Parts, they definitely do have some like self-guided practices. Do you think that this is something that is, for somebody who's never, you know, seen a pr practitioner before, like something that can be effectively done on their own. Yeah, there are people who do it. Uh, I, you know, it'd be interesting to send out a survey because because my my sense is that more often than not, if someone just tries to do it alone, they they don't get very far. Mm -hmm. Now that could be inaccurate. I, I have a skewed, you, you know, my this is based on the people I see, people I talk to, so they're already talking to me at, at that mm -hmm. point. So it's not necessarily reliable. Mm -hmm. or doesn't apply to the broad population. But I think it's difficult, again, depending on one's level of trauma. We, we talked earlier about how hard it is for a lot of us to focus inside alone and, and stay in the present. That's a big factor. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's much easier generally with, you know, when someone's there holding that space. Yeah. yeah. But again, the intent is that there's more of that thing. Once someone becomes more familiar with doing it, what I see is that they can do more and more on their own in between sessions. So, you know, one of my heroes, Gabor Mate, says half jokingly, half not, that, you know, your job as a therapist or a practitioner is to get yourself fired as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Not in a bad way. But, you know, this therapy for decades at a time stuff doesn't work for me. So the, the idea is to empower the person to do more and more of this on their own. And they may still need someone to hold space from time to time, but it really does lend itself well with more and people being able more and more over time to, to do it on their own. What about doing this with children? 
Yeah, there are, there are a couple books on that. That's not my area of specialty, but it, you know, children in some ways are easier because they don't have all, they don't all have their drunk. rational minds and high gear. Also trying to analyze everything and question everything, especially the younger you get. So I haven't tried this with my six-year-old yet, but there, there are people who will report, especially at that age, like it, it immediately clicks with them faster than it would an adult. Mm. Because, you know, you can, like, there's a movie Inside Out that's a cartoon that's amazing. Mm -hmm. but, that, and, kid, you know, you show that to a kid, and I've seen people talk about this, like, the kid immediately gets it. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because they don't have all these preconceptions quite wired into them yet. What about somebody who, I mean, all these parts are, what would you say they're, like, fully formed by? Or do you think they're constantly being added on to? You mean in terms of quantity or parts, what it's carrying? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I'm just, like, wondering, like, Let's say something traumatic happens to somebody in their 30s. Could a new protector or like be formed or would it just be like kind of added on to just make an existing part more severe? Gotcha. Yeah, I think more often than not, it's the second one. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't, at least I don't often run into parts that are, you know, over 20. Mm -hmm. it, it has happened. But yeah, normally there's already a protector in place that just takes on a, a different role or who already has a role that's appropriate that because we're always almost by definition and this is interesting this is this again trauma begets trauma right so in this i know this is my opinion but but if we take a hypothetical 30 year old who has zero trauma mm -hmm. they don't get traumatized when they're 30 that's true right because they have number one the social supports in place and they don't have all this baggage from the past now they may go through something that's traumatizing yeah, but they can but, process it. Yeah, they get through. Absolutely. They get through it because it's not triggering all this other stuff. So almost by definition, when a 30-year-old is traumatized, it's it's it, the reason that's the case is because it's triggering all these young parts anyway. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, it is. It's not, it's not, I can't remember what book I was reading it in. It's not about necessarily like what happened to you as a kid, but that the fact that you didn't have the support to process what you went through. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you want to take this? Ooh, good question. So, so one of the things I do, I can give a somewhat subtle example of how this plays out, because I, I think we know, you know, there's a lot of times trauma is obvious, but there's a lot of situations where it's not. And I, mm -hmm. and I find this, and this is just a quick example. That if, so if I'm, you know, talking to a group, I'll say, all right, raise your hand if you have trouble staying in the present. And everybody will raise their hand. And isn't that interesting that we live in a culture where almost nobody, like even when we're putting effort into doing it, we're trying to meditate. It's for most of us, it's so, so difficult to do that. And so what I find is it's interesting to look at it through this perspective, you know, this lens that we're talking about. So I'll ask you, Andrea, and this is a question I throw out. When a person's being traumatized, where is the absolute worst possible place for them to be in that moment? Alone. Alone, yeah, and in the present. Hmm. The so they're, oh, yeah, they're, yeah, 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 and they are alone, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So in the present. So okay, interesting. So now we start looking at this as something adaptive, right? Because so one of the things trauma does is that it takes us out of the present moment, and this is a coping strategy. There's intelligence there because particularly when we're young, if we didn't have a way to escape from or dissociate from the present moment during trauma. It would be so overwhelming to us that it would literally kill us. Mm. The nervous system would collapse on, onto itself. Mm -hmm. So this is literally a survival response that kicks in. I'm gonna, the nervous system says, I'm going to take you out of the present and either numb you or have you leave your body somehow. You know, there are a number of ways to do it. Now, when, when trauma is chronic, as it usually is, our parts very quickly learn that the present moment is unsafe. The present is dangerous. And because survival is at stake, they don't have time to sit there and say, okay, well, here's when it's safe and here's when it's not. So I'll only take her out of the present, you know, in these situations. They just say, I'm taking this person out permanently. Mm -hmm. I don't trust the present moment ever. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which again is intelligent when we're being traumatized all the time as kids. But then we grow up as adults who, no matter how hard we try, it's very difficult to stay in the present moment. And that's because, again, parts get stuck in the past. They, they haven't gotten the memo that hopefully we're safe now. Mm -hmm. So, again, I find this fascinating. This is not something we would normally attribute to trauma. I think we tend to think this is how the brain is. This is because of social media. This is because of phones. 
those that's all those were all symptoms of this to me. The cause is that the, you know if you if you look at anthropologists who studied hunter gatherer cultures mostly in the early 1900s before they were colonized, they would live with them for six months, twelve months, document everything they did, and the universal finding was that number one these are the happiest people I've ever encountered, and number two they have a presence about them. They're not always in the past or in the future like we are. So, so my contention is that the natural state, and this is of all animals, if you look at animals, they're the same way. They live in the present. I believe the natural state of humans was that way too until we invented civilization and industrialization and we started traumatizing each other as a result of that. And so now none of us can be in the present, but this is not normal. So, it, and, and there are you know tons of examples like this where it gets subtle and it, it's kind of like it's the water we swim in. Mm -hmm. so to speak. So I, I, you know, thought I would offer that. I find that fascinating. It is fascinating. Yeah. It's a, you know, I think, I think society is like slowly coming around to it, you know, but yeah. it's a big, it's a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's all the problems probably. <laughs> yeah. It's just are everywhere. You, yeah. Are you consistently taking like more trainings or have you read any new books or have you learned anything recently about the process that you found particularly interesting? Interesting. Yeah, I am. There, there are a lot of you know, new specialized classes come out from people who've been doing this for decades, you know, the people who created the model. So, you know, I'm in one now, there's another one that, that's recorded that I'm starting soon. So, and, and those are great because they're, they tend to have a narrow focus of, okay, we're going to dig really deep into this, for example, or into that. And yeah, it's a constant process. Like the model evolves like any model should because people discover more and more things. And maybe they find that what they thought they discovered 10 years ago turns out not to be accurate once more mm -hmm. people start trying it. Mm -hmm. But there's a great community with with this approach. I love it. And and everyone's kind of, you know, keeping each other up to date, so to speak, on what, what their experiences are, what works, what doesn't, that, that type of thing. Well, it's awesome. So tell everybody how they can find you and how they can work with you and all that jazz. Yeah, so website is uh, healingtheself.net, mm -hmm. one word. And I'm on Instagram, terry.baranski. And uh, yeah, those are the two. So, and, and I'm just, you mentioned this earlier, I'm just starting getting more and more into group work, both here locally in DC and online. Do you find that to be effective? Yeah, it's, it really is powerful for mm -hmm. people. I, I do, you know, I talk about a lot of what I've talked about with you these last two episodes. We do some IFS meditations at the group level to guide people to discovering parts and, and experiencing self. And it really resonates. I'm, I'm really excited about that, to, to keep doing that and keep seeing what, what people want to learn about, what, what doesn't land so well. And so that, that's super exciting. So between that and the one-on-one -on -one work, yeah, I'm having a good time with this. This is, it's, good. it's such a passion. I'm so happy with it. Yeah, it's great that you found something. It's helping a lot of people. So keep doing it, dude. Thanks. Let it all go.